Hey everybody, Mark D, IT guy, dad, generally bad anime nerd, and uh, bad movie nerd too. Spoiler alert, it's an anime, if you didn't know what the hell the movie was. If, by, by any chance. I, 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 f I fully acknowledge that having a surprise here is stupid, because there's a contract between the podcast producer or creator and the podcast audience and that contract I, I i take it very seriously and there was one episode of one podcast where for about 30 minutes it's not what the podcast title is and i was so disoriented i was so confused and then it turns out that they switched it and we're like well we can't call it the other thing because then it's a whole thing Anyway, hiding the, the, the thing, I don't know, maybe April Fool's joke or something, but short of that, I don't, I don't really see it working out well. So anyway, watching Cowboy Bebop, talking about Cowboy Bebop, already watched it, talking about Cowboy Bebop, which is just a lot of bees, Cowboy Bebop, today. Cowboy Bebop, obviously an excessively popular anime show that found its success in the early days of Cartoon Network's Tsunami, which is what, you know, people in the early 2000s that were awake at all hours of the night and didn't really have actual jobs uh, watched. So, yours truly, kind of. So Cowboy Bebop, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing. It's definitely a vibe. But uh, let's get into it. Let's just do it. So, by the numbers, Cowboy Bebop Knocking on Heaven's Door opened in Japan on September 1st, 2001. And then, eventually, after two years, made it to U.S. theaters April 6, 2003, to the tune of 245K opening weekend. It went on to make a million dollars in the States and about three million worldwide on what was probably a one and a half mil budget, maybe? Um, I mean, that's spitballing based on, on some hearsay that an episode was around $200,000 and the assumption that they really amped up animation in more ways than just throughput and made more music and stuff. Napkin math on my uninformed part, so just ignore that I even mentioned it. Like, fuck me, I actually don't know what I'm talking about here. I, like, factually do not know what I'm talking about at all. Hey, also, um, I'm stupid. This is future me, by the way. And uh, I found out that it's not the Eiffel Tower. When you hear me talking about the Eiffel Tower, it's not the Eiffel Tower, okay? It is uh, Tokyo Tower. Uh, and Wikipedia thankfully provided the pronunciation guide of Tokyo Tawa. And it's a communications and observation tower, right? And it looks kind of Eiffel Tower-ish. But that's 100% the tower in the movie. Tokyo Tower. Every time I say Eiffel Tower and the whole rant about the Cocteau Twins, which actually shows up twice in this episode, ignore it. Pretend it didn't happen. Because I messed up hard. Thank you. 
sorry for that medical device check. And uh, we had ascertained with great confidence that I did not know what I was talking about in terms of budget for animation. That holds true. The movie was also rated R, which is a bit of a departure from, from the show, which is, you know, what we would call, I guess, TVMA today. The show always had a really healthy amount of violence, but not a whole lot of sex, and the, the, the movie's no exception to that. The, well, the, the, sex is, the sex is about the same, or, or maybe even less than, than some episodes, possibly. But you're definitely getting more bang for your buck in the violence department. I think the thing that tipped it into the R territory is, is probably, or, or actually in retrospect, right? Like maybe, maybe I'm just dumb and I just didn't even realize how, uh, how bad it was, but there, there's some pretty intense stuff that happens with Faye that is, uh, sexual, both tangentially and directly sexual in nature. So yeah, that, that was, that was probably it. I think it's a safe bet that that was it. But Cowboy Bebop is not a new nor a scarce phenomenon. There's, there's plenty of Cowboy Bebop stuff to go around. Like, anime fans literally just tire of discussing Bebop. And it probably has enjoyed the widest selection or the, the widest acceptance of, of any anime to date. Uh, aloof sports dads could sit down and you know, given enough time, probably find something about the show that they like. I'm not going to, I'm not going to break down the TV show, though. It's, it's well on the outside of this scope, the, the scope of this podcast, and at 26 episodes, it probably warrants a podcast episode per TV episode, I would say at least. That might be a thing, though. If I hit, um, if I hit a hundred reviews on, on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, right? It's not iTunes anymore, uh, unless you have Windows. If I hit a hundred reviews on Apple Podcasts, I will do a Cowboy Bebop spinoff podcast. I, I will just do it. I will fucking do it. I will, you know, put my mouth where my mouth is. Um, put my no. I'm not gonna. Okay. <sighs> There are, you know, there's a bunch of really, really good videos, very good videos about Cowboy Bebop on YouTube, and I will, I will have links to them in the show notes. Some are about Bebop, some are about only the movie, some are about the whole show, and, and some are about Watanabe. It's, it's all good. Like, these are all pretty, pretty cool videos. Uh, speaking of Watanabe, uh, Sh Shinichiro... Watanabe. I'm uh, uh, sorry for any pronunciation. I I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it's uh, Shinichiro Watanabe is the director of of Cowboy Bebop and perhaps the the point of the tip of the arrow, right? That makes up the Bebop team. He's definitely got a vision, and uh, the production crew has played a vital role, extremely vital, in realizing it. Watanabe worked on Macross and Macross Plus, and, and in there you could see the DNA of Bebop. However, you know, like visually, I guess. But it, it became fully realized when, when Watanabe became sole director on Bebop, right? He, uh, th through a, a turn of events, became sole director on, on 
what was going to be Cowboy Bebop, they offered him, Bandai said, hey, make something to uh, sell spaceships. And he's like, I will make a space show. That's how he said it, too. No, but anyway, you know, a little bit in the weeds here. Um, but it matters because all these people ended up working on the movie as well. That's why I'm getting into this. He, uh, he got uh, Keiko Nobumoto, who is the chief screenwriter for Cowboy Bebop, with whom he'd previously worked. And I think he worked with her on Macross Plus, maybe? Uh, not 100% Macross, Macross Plus. Uh, he's, he's done some stuff before. Um, Toshihiro Kamamoto is the lead character designer who, who really realized the, the, just the, the people of Cowboy Bebop. Kimitoshi Yamane is the mecha designer or, you know, industrial designer who designed, you know, the, the machinery, the spaceships and all these things in Bebop, which are iconic in their own way. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And I think last, but definitely not least, and maybe one of the people who could safely be credited for at least 50% of Cowboy Bebop's fame is uh, Yoko Kano, who is the composer for the music for Cowboy Bebop and has done so much original music with her band, The Seat Belts. The work of these people is is just, it's all over Cowboy Bebop. It is their art. It is their touch. And th they did not change anyone over for the movie or anything like that. They didn't bring in a big gun or, or a ringer, like, give me the ringer, bring in the lefty. None of that. I think that, that uh, Watanabe fully accepted these people for their vision and their skill and their craft and and any kind of these abstract concepts, but he fully embraced them. And perhaps like Alexander, he incorporated them into his vision for Cowboy Bebop, and it makes it special. So, and and I'm not a fan of, of like when a show gets a movie, like shit gets different. You know, I, I don't see TV. I don't see the hierarchy, which used to exist in the 90s now in the 90s, and is now kind of being flipped on its head, right? Prestige television right now is like kind of the the top shit those actors are getting hella paid they have steady jobs like it's it's a different vibe and the, the money's really catching up in a big way and the public discourse uh how many podcasts were spun off from game of thrones or fucking walking dead or you know whatever is on now you know whatever big shows i'm sure gray's anatomy has like a fucking hundred you know, that, that back then they would like replace everybody. They would rip the guts out of the show to make the movie. And that didn't feel good. I didn't like it. I, I did not enjoy it. So yeah, I just, I really liked that. Uh, just about everything is status quo. Even it's a couple of years after the, sh the show's production run ended. And there is maybe a little more CG in here that kind of mm, sticks out maybe a tiny bit, but still it's okay. I think it was by far an overall success. You know, it's not it's not a perfect movie. I'm not here to tell you that in any way, shape, or form. I'm, in fact, we'll, we'll we'll talk about some things, but we'll we're, we're, let's get into spoiler territory. This is kaching spoilers, right? So this may not be that hot of a take, but I I do not do subs for Bebop. 
that that's a thing that I don't do. And um, if you really want to get an idea of of what the popular the the zeitgeist of subs versus dubs is, you can go to YouTube, and I'll I'll put a link for this as well. I need to write that down. You can go to YouTube and check out Anime Crimes Division Season One, Episode One. Okay. I I know what I'm saying. I know what it sounds like. However, this is actually the, maybe the most representative through art uh, of of the feelings. It is a holy war. It is Emacs versus Vim. It is Windows versus Linux versus macOS. It is Ford versus Chevy. It is Ford versus Ferrari. It is, you know, whatever you want any of those things. I guarantee you someone somewhere has a picture of Calvin pissing on, on dubs, you know? I came about Bebop organically, like nobody like showed me. I was just fucking watching Cartoon Network in the middle of the night, and it happened. And I fell in love with these voice actors. I fell in love with this cast. And I think that they do a stellar job. And, and by me, you know, rambling this sentence, I'm... I'm staking my claim. I'm I'm putting my flag in here. I will I will say that Bebop is the dub that all dubs should be judged against. That all dubs should aim for, right? That is the standard. At anything less is like don't. Anything more is well, I haven't really seen anything more. So we're we're kind of in that space. Yeah, the 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 dub is if the dub was any better, I would try to marry it. Straight up, I I would try to try to marry a dub of an anime show and a movie because it's the same cast again, same people. It's good shit. So that being said, I watched the movie and this time with burnt in subs because I fucking am not great on picking options to encode movies and I was watching it on my Plex. I at least got the audio right. That was cool. So I had my English audio, even though I had both. I had the Japanese track too. I just don't like it. And um, I had burned in subs, and I did notice that there was some dis- some difference, and perhaps you know some changes that were made to the dub that didn't exist necessarily in the sub. Some elaborations, and that's okay, and I'm okay with that. And I think that Vincent was maybe one of those people that got that a little more. But again, it worked better for me, the American audience, I think, than it would have. Otherwise, Toshihiro Kamamoto designed characters which were influenced by Lupin the Third, right? Another older, much older kind of anime show, and that's Jet and Spike primarily. Lupin the Third, among other things, and mainly followed archetypes, you know, right? But he made them fit in in the the, the world that was created around this kind of concept of a a neo-western space noir if you can dig it right it's it's pretty ambitious and uh i like it and uh, you know at least for the movie is animated between a couple of companies three companies sunshine bandai visual and bones sunshine was the studio that primarily worked on the show and bones was made of staff who had left sunshine so hey that works out Bandai was primarily involved, you know, because they're the ones who provided the initial funding to fucking sell spaceships. 
so they owned a piece of the show, some by you know by hook or by crook or whatever the case. Um, it, but it's just funny how uh, not well Watanabe delivered on that promise of I'm going to make your show to sell spaceships. They basically told him it just has to have ships, and he's like, I got you, fam. But again, this is all you know. It's obviously all worked out in retrospect. Great success. Is that a uh, Borat? My wife. I don't know. But yeah, obviously this is all. 2020 hindsight and i'm just talking about it because all of these things are indelibly linked you know the movie and the show they are almost one and the same so anyway we can move on there really is some beautiful animation here and uh i would say that my favorites are the establishing shots of the city or the bazaar right and and the fight scenes i, I really like the fight scenes and you know the dog fight scenes the aerial fight scenes as well uh, the choreography of, of Spike and the fight scenes in general uh, is very fluid, but with a sense of inertia, right? Like in the opening in the convenience store, Spike gives the head bad guy like this fucking roundhouse kick, but his upper body like turns, I guess like a, as a real person would do it, his upper body turns first to kind of pull his leg around. And it's not something that you would see in normal animation, but Bebop, I think really... You know, like a, a lesser show would have just, the character would just pull the leg around kind of at the same speed as their upper body kind of thing. But I think that Boobop, Bebop, Boobop, it's not October anymore, it's not Boobop. I think that Bebop really aims to humanize its characters and, you know, visually and thematically as, as much as it can. Jet, um, tangentially, in the same scene, when he fucks up and kind of misidentifies the number of baddies, uh, he throws some, like, bullshit rhetoric at Spike to totally try to justify his mistake, but then he just gets, like, plain called out, and they don't dwell on it, they don't settle that score, they don't do anything, but it's just like a moment where, where somebody fucks up and they're trying to make an excuse for it. You know, the movie doesn't, doesn't sit on it, and I appreciate it, it's just, it's a moment, and I don't think that the movie sits on anything too long, uh, with exceptions. And again, this is also going into the show, right? So the, everything the movie does, the show has touched, and this is why this might be a little hard for somebody to follow, but it, it's okay. It's fine. We'll, we'll go. We'll keep on. So the fight scene between Spike and Electra in the hallway of the medical company with the broom is also really fun. And the big end fight is also pretty great in my opinion. Attention was paid to how the camera, right? And I, I use air quotes here, camera, camera, um, which is room in Italian, very confusing. How the camera interacts, how it lives in the world, how it there are different like lens choices on the camera that give you a very different vibe on the scene on the shot, you know, um, there's like these weird wide angles on Vincent sometimes, like the part in the train where he's holding the grenade and he kind of, yeah, that, that, that part looks wild as hell. Um, you know, the, the super telephoto shaky cam in the beginning, also on Vincent again, out of focus. That one's really cool. And, uh, they lean into dreaminess, you know, more than a couple of times. I also like how the butterflies were animated. No, no, no real info on that. I just, I just like it, you know. Also, additionally, and because I'm sure this episode is a hard to follow hot mess already, this podcast episode. 
you know, Matt, Matt Watanabe, who was co-director, I think, on, on Macross Plus and worked on Macross, that had a lot of kind of aerial dogfighting action stuff, and it's pretty badass, and it definitely translates into Bebop and into the movie, right? I think it's safe to say if I say Cowboy Bebop, I could mean the show or the movie or both, and it just it doesn't matter. It's all one and the same. That is how... Uh, that is how in character, that is how contiguous it feels. It doesn't feel like it's a separate thing. It feels like it's one long, long episode of Cowboy Bebop. So, right. Uh, anyway, the dogfighting is great, honestly. And uh, the music is also really important in Cowboy Bebop for, you know, maybe a couple reasons. Uh, Yoko Kano is a fairly prolific composer who has worked in various media and somewhat surprisingly i think uh, in various genres normally a composer will just stick to their kind of lane but not yoko kano yoko kano is literally every fucking where in the spectrum and you know the blanket statement uh saying that the music in cowboy bebop is uniformly cool will will validate her but she has much more prestigious prestigious is, is that how uh, people say it in hollywood uh prestigious he has much more prestigious credits than fucking cowboy bebop you know she's not infrequently sang her own compositions she had a, a pseudonym for the vocalist um i got it i can't think of the name but the name is like fucking insane and uh it was just her. She just didn't want to put her name on it. I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe uh, nervous. But it's good stuff. So you can definitely check out the credits for uh, Cowboy Bebop Future Blues is the name of the album, the soundtrack album for this movie. If you want a little more info on the various guest musicians, but primarily she works with the project band that she's in, The Seatbelts, to make the music of Cowboy Bebop. The opening of the show, and I, you know, I, I keep trying to not talk about the show, but I can only help but to talk about the show. Um, it has mm, probably one of the most iconic theme songs ever made, ever, like ever. It is, it is, um, it's simultaneously similar to. And yet, like, also vastly superior to, you know, to, like, any any James Bond opening. Any of them. It's got uh, some of the same ideas, but it's just, it fucking blows them all out of the goddamn water. So we don't get that song. We don't get that song or that animatic or animation in the movie. The song is called Tank. Like, Tank, but with a, an exclamation point at the end. But that's okay. That's okay. We get, uh, it's, we've seen 26 episodes of the show. We've lived with it for years. I, I think that we can have a new thing for the movie. I think that's okay. It's not the show. It is the movie. And that's fair, right? So we do get a song called Ask DNA, which is a pretty cool kind of 90s alt-rock song, which with some, you know, questionably crafted lyrics, perhaps somebody who was not a native um, English speaker. But it 
totally works. And it says Earth Girls Are Easy, which is, again, a movie with uh, Jim Carrey and a couple other folks. I can't think of their names right now. And uh, was who the fuck was in Earth Girls Are Easy? Now, I'm, I'm like, I, I feel like the cast is, like, insane. I'm thinking Jeff Goldblum or something in it. Uh, uh, Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum, Jim Carrey, and Damon Wayans. Yeah, no, that cast is... Yeah, okay, so I, I don't think that people talk about Earth Girls are easy uh, enough. Not with that cast at any rate. But yeah, it would it would seem funny because um, it, it, in, it would seem to be a song with a galactic perspective. So, you know, perhaps a, a music video that is in-universe, but that wouldn't make 100% sense because the Earth had been already extremely damaged by the very technology that made distant space travel possible. And I'm sure that that was a a very sensitive subject in the universe for a long time. And it was like 70 years ago, I think approximately, uh, in, in time, but it's somewhat of a Neil Stevenson seven Eve situation. And, um, yeah, I don't know that it would necessarily make sense. Uh, but, but it's, but it's a fun song and it's got a cool nineties, uh, kind of music video going on of just people in the street. One of the guys looks like the guys from counting crow and then, there's a shot of a guy walking past the camera and he walks back and he does like some bullshit karate. And I think that that like is a real thing that happened. I remember a real guy doing that and I've tried to Google it and I fucking can't find it. How do you do, do like old guy doing karate street? It's all street fights and bullshit. I don't anyway. So, you know, another thing about the music that kind of caught my attention was that there's an interesting time of pop that I kind of call alt-pop. I, I, I call it that. I don't think it's its actual name. Or, or 90s alt-pop. 90s alt, I guess, is sufficient. But not um, not the grunge. Like an alt-rock, but not, the, not so much the grunge. Uh, not Alice in Chains, not Nirvana. Think of the, think of the more danceable garbage songs. Garbage, the band, not bad songs. Um, the band's name is Garbage. Shirley Manson, Butch Vig, uh, etc. Um, anyway, the the song is called Cosmic Dare, uh, subtitled Pretty with a Pistol. is is basically approximating the genre that I have in my mind 100%. And this strikes me because one of my favorite series of games, uh, Gran Turismo, uh, 1 through 4 specifically, had a soundtrack that that resembled this a lot. Gran Turismo was developed by Sony First Party Studio Polyphony Digital and has what one might say, what what some would consider academically, banging soundtracks, right? And I think this was to accentuate the CD-based kind of console that was the Sony PlayStation, and uh, it it super fucking worked. Everybody loved it. You know, I can still see here, like, I'm j driving around or I'm fucking folding laundry or some bullshit, and I'm here humming songs from the Gran Turismo soundtracks, is, is how successful they were. You know, I, I did a quick search on who might have worked or selected the music in the games. I couldn't find it. I don't know where the, the manuals or the boxes or any of the bullshit is. I, I, could, I think I still have a save for Gran Turismo 2. You know, wh wh whatever. I'm not going to go through it. 
Um, it just I, I I did a search on the internet and nobody gives a shit about who worked on on Gran Turismo credits wise. So you know, uh, but whoever did that, whoever worked on the music for the intros, the outros, or the endings, the uh, the credits, you know, the, the the background music during the races, even the menu music fucking slaps in its own menu music kind of way. So congrats to those people. Like, they did great. I don't know their names. I would love to, to say their names, though. In some cases, it was perhaps an over overt representation of what was popular at the time. However, there were also classics that were uh, really beautiful and appropriate. And I... The, Playing Gran Turismo is what got me into the cult. And no, I, I don't mean I got into a cult. I mean the band named The Cult, right? I realized that with that and Garbage, it's a, it's a who's on first situation. Uh, there was definitely a Garbage song on one of the GT soundtracks as well, right? If I recall correctly, as well as um, I, I believe a hugely validating mix of a song off the Crystal Methods debut album, Vegas. That was coming back, and I want to say it was like coming back future mix, right? I'm just all from from memory. And I was a big fan of that album. I, I love that album. So I to see it just around, I was like, yeah, you know? But 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 in this digression, I think that I'm attempting to prove a point that this multi-genre approach to music as as texture, um, as a as a base layer of aural entertainment oral dirty 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 get your mind out of the gutter it, it can be really effective and cowboy bebop is absolutely and a hundred percent an example of this also that that music can be in universe because faye is bopping to cosmic dare as uh, she's pulling up on the the tanker truck in the beginning she's just you know, not in her head. She's going for it, right? And it's it it it's got a it's got a rhythm. It'll do it, you know. Uh, pushing the sky is the other kind of '90s alt rock, uh, banger with questionable lyrics. Maybe a little bit of uh, Matrix lobby scene inspired. Uh, shit, what's the name of the song? I thought it was a Rob D song. Uh, Matrix lobby theme song. Or not theme song. Jeez. Uh Propeller Heads, that's right. Spybreak, I believe is the name of the song. So it's got a maybe a, a tiny bit of that vibe, but still this um kind of pan genre nineties alt vibe. And and this movie came out in two thousand one. So if you account for I guess like um distance and language difference uh exchange between culture in america and japan i mean it's probably less now but it, it used to take a couple years like we'd have something and they'd get it in a couple years and then they'd have stuff and we'd get it like in 10 years or whatever like we were always behind on each other's shit so so when i say like 90s stuff like that might have just kind of made it there like the later 90s stuff so i'm not trying to be a jerk or anything i'm just saying that that's what it is uh the song clutch it really is a bop right you know like a bebop bop 
you know the genre of music that uh that underpins the hallway fight fight scene. It's playful, it's dynamic, it's energetic. While still it's not goofy, right? It um it's still very technically sophisticated like the fight, right? It's a good song for a good scene. Uh there's there's a, there's a good parade song in there that's real fun that's kind of like Hey Pachuco a little bit. Uh you know what planet is this is another like really fucking badass modern jazz song that plays during the Spike Spiegel dogfight with the army and it's it's also an absolute bop it's super good and um it's big and bold think of lingus by snarky puppy but just faster and like like it had a good night's rest like more flamboyant Lingus is is a fucking banger. Lingus slaps. Lingus is like eight minutes of like the hardest shit. But it feels like it hadn't had its coffee yet when you compare it to this song, when you compare it to more of a of a bebop flavor kind of thing. Where it's just more tempo, more, just more, and bigger and more and louder and more. Versus Lingus, which gets very, very quiet. They're, really exploring the the dynamic range of the uh, audio oral experience and, and things like that in the music and really playing to psychoacoustic uh, blah, blah, blahs because there's a bunch of fucking kids that went to school for 48 years uh, to play jazz. And, and I get that and I appreciate that. But, I mean, this is not the time or the place for it. This movie does not call for that. This movie calls for something faster. And that's what we get in What Planet Is This? Which they say that. And uh, it's fucking dope. So, uh, you know, I didn't say flamboyant, like, being like, it's gay. No. And that's not bad. And it's not, it's just, I'm not trying to, like, diss anybody. Just saying, like, it floats. It has energy. It has, uh, it's just, it's the perfect song for an aerial dogfight. I don't know what to say, you know? I don't, I don't know what to say. Watch the movie. Just tell me I'm wrong. But it's not all fun and games. Yoko Kano also made... Uh, a song called Powder, which is freakish and eerie and just has a chorus of like uh, either demons or angels, I'm not sure which, if you're Dan Brown, maybe both, um, which is like the butterflies song, the virus song, and also the grenade song in the train, in the train fight. So I will say that Cowboy Bebop, Knocking on Heaven's Door, the movie, is cinematic. This seems obvious. It's called the movie after all but when i say it's a movie i mean I, it's a it's a movie right this movie it quotes a lot of actual movies which is something that it's i don't think it's unusual but i do think that it is unusual for the the genre and is more of a characteristic of what we consider as auteurs who make what we consider as capital m movies or films right this definitely lends uh, Cowboy Bebop a more familiar vibe. We see shots in this movie that we've seen before. IMDb has a, a connections list that is fairly populated, but is also user-submitted. And there is one like really stupid-looking entry in there. Let me know on Twitter if you see it. At CoolMarkD. Cool with a C and Mark with a K. And, um, well, there's, there's, there's a point where Jed is meeting one of his old colleagues at the ISSP or the Martian police, and they're at a drive-in watching a Western, and I believe it to be High Noon, 
because the folks were dressed about right, the scene's about right, and all that. And uh, then there's the one sequence where Electra goes through decontamination, which is an homage to 2001 A Space Odyssey. The video message that Lee Sampson uses to deliver the threat is very much a pull from hackers, right? The kind of hackers' messages that they leave with the goofy shit. And, um, listen, I'll die on that hill. That's a fucking hackers reference. And I'm sure there are a thousand and one other references that I just didn't even get, but this really helps kind of in a, in a template way. I don't want to, I don't want to reduce anybody's job here. I don't want to make it seem like it's easy and you can just copy other people. That's not what this is. But when things are in early work, you can use like temp, what's called like temp footage, and you can actually slide in like a scene from another movie just to stand in as you're building your storyboards and doing your things. And there's also the, the, the concept of temp music, which is why a lot of scores sometimes end up sounding like each other because, you know, everything sounds like Gladiator because everybody uses the Gladiator score as temp music and then the director all the way at the end of the process says, uh, we need to hire somebody for music and just tell them to do something that sounds like that. So that's, that's a real phenomenon. And I don't think that necessarily happens so much in animation with animators, uh, really feeling like they're creating the world from a whole cloth or blank paper as it would be in a vacuum, I should say. So Quoting movies already like lends it more movie-ness to it. It is much more movie-like in a way that is probably subconscious. So this really helps uh, the Cowboy Bebop movie break, or Cowboy Bebop, right, I should say, not even the movie, all of Cowboy Bebop. This really helps Cowboy Bebop break the anime mold of high school shows and shonen shows where it's like, oh, mostly I'm going to beat you up or like, I'm in high school. Oh, how do I juggle all these things? Which are very common shows. Like this is the stereotype, right? If you talk to most people, this is what they think. And it's not always bad, but this is sometimes a negative stereotype. So, so, so Bebop is, is different. It's not here. It's, I'm not saying that it's like a completely original thing and no one has ever thought of this, but it's definitely out of the bounds of what a normal, traditional idea, a common anime would be, at least to an American. And it, it welcomes examination and acceptance from a wider audience. The, the YouTuber Steve M, or Steve M, I don't know if it's Steven but it's a joke, it's an M. He has a real big, uh, I, th I think a two-part video on Watanabe. I don't know. Link, link in the show notes. I don't fucking remember. But um, Steve M, I believe, is the one who, who calls Vincent a character straight out of Metal Gear. And I, I cannot tell you how validating that was. So much. It was so much. Because uh, it just, it feels great when, when, smart people have the same ideas that you do independently, right? And I was rewatching this movie and I was like, holy shit, dude, this guy's like something out of fucking Metal Gear. He's like immortal. He can't die. He disappears like a ghost. It's very, um, apparently Watanabe is like anime's Hideo Kojima 
in in some ways in that Kojima is notoriously just like quoting a lot of things but also bending these things into to his will to his narrative to his themes he he's notorious for these things but he also puts his Kojima spin on it so i mean Kojima's kind of like the Tarantino of of video games so by by transitive property perhaps you could posit that Watanabe is the Tarantino of anime but i'm not going to uh, 6 degrees of Kevin Bacon that shit just I'll let somebody else do it. And also, what's up with what's up with the government reports in dark rooms with spotlights? They had that shit in a big bad way in in uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and it never made a fucking lick of sense to me. But I was like, oh, I don't know, it's Neo Tokyo, whatever, you know, the underground buildings and stuff. It's different. It's future. This show is like the same, and I'm like, um, is this really how this happens? Like, I need to ask somebody about this. I'm asking you, I suppose, but it's, it's, it's so fucking dramatic. Like, is this a convention in Japan? Is this normal? Because I've got to say, it's pretty fucking weird. Like, having a, a big, long room and a huge table that's always dark, and then you can, like, individually turn on and turn off all these spotlights over all these chairs. It's, um, it seems excessive. It seems excessive. Let me know on Twitter. So, so there's also some X-Files influence in here. Spike being recovered by the ostensibly Native Americans on Mars is a whole kind of um, Anasazi slash The Blessing Way. So, you know, season two finale, season three premiere kind of thing where uh, Mulder gets, you know, recovered by Native Americans. And they drop some fucking wisdom on his ass. Vincent really sometimes has this, uh, at least in the American, American, at least in the American dub. He has a, a bit of a verbosity, verbosity, right, to him. He really paints the picture. And, uh, you know, Spike is more of a hard-boiled detective, continental op kind of guy, uh, almost the Shield Hammett type of PI, bounty hunter kind of thing. And the show, the show really doesn't have a lot of time to have villains monologuing, but the movie does. And, you know, that's kind of an X-Files thing. You know, I think Chris Carter, you know, Chris Carter would really get in there and just he would write some heavy shit every now and then when the passion took him. And uh, there's a whole wiki page on on X-Files monologues link in the show notes because I wanted to look one up and I was like, no, no, no there's too many. I'm not going to pick one. I will just present them all for your, you know, for your at your convenience. You may examine them. Because peruse uh, used to mean to examine thoroughly, now means to skim. The movie doesn't go quite that far, though, um, because it's not the Vincent show. It's really it's the it's kind of it's it's starting down that path, and I I do feel that X Files is a strong influence, but it's definitely more about Spike and and things like that. Even though the the movie is a thousand percent about Vincent and Electra, we we don't we just don't see them as much. It's a weird like we're seeing like the so I don't know if you remember like uh, DVD maybe, but I think uh, HD DVD and I think Blu-ray. They're like you can have alternate camera angles, and I think I've seen one movie that had alternate camera angles, and you would press like the red button on your remote. This movie feels a little bit like we're seeing the alternate camera angle of the Vincent and Electra resolution kind of thing, 
and there's a lot to it, and there's there's a lot in what we see too. I'm not saying there isn't, but it's just interesting how the crew of the Bebop. It's really Spike and and Faye who are doing things, and I don't know. I just it's 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 really weird. It's just strange. But you know, Vincent saying his weird shit, and uh, especially when you get the butterflies and the music and and the slow motion dreamy shit, it it's cool. I dig it. The setting, oh, they always feel familiar, even if it's in space. Bebop is, uh, they distill familiarity into foreign settings. Bebop never, it never really feels like, like you're on an alien world. It feels very grounded to our world, and... You know, the city that they're in feels like New York, and Moroccan Street feels like a bazaar in Morocco. And the Eiffel Tower feels kind of kind of fine, like it's it would be in the middle of Paris, but hey, not really. And it's also much, much bigger, uh, I think. The the one in the movie, not not the one. Not the one in Paris. I've heard it's not that big. But it is iconic. But maybe so in my dumb conspiracy brain, I thought that that was a reference to the Cocteau Twins. Uh, iconic, again, to use the word iconic, album, Heaven or Las Vegas. Now, go with me on this uh, conspiracy corner ruse room type fucking dive. But Vincent calls it the bridge that links heaven and earth. And there is a Paris hotel in Las Vegas with a, an Eiffel Tower fucking sticking out of it. You know, I've been there. It's, I, I went up it. It's pretty tall. Uh, it's pretty weird to walk under the supports in the, that are in the casino of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, scary as well. Because in my head, the shit's just collapsing. It's all fine. It's super safe, I'm sure. But that album is hugely influential. It has it, its influence is still lasting now, and I'm I'm just running out of gas i'm sorry but i'm i'm trying i'm trying team um halloween on mars also looks fucking pretty rad and it's it's like a red orange dusk it's, it's definitely there's a color palette thing it's you know it's a cool thing for the end fight to have that dusk kind of vibe the environments and the ships do have a, a really lived in feeling it's the streets are dirty the ships are are the technology is never like idyllic or utopic. It's always um, falling apart, really, and like kind of shitty. Uh, the ship design is is cool in that it's it's kind of somewhat organic, but also somewhat like fucked up and ugly. And um, they shake and they vibrate and they rattle apart. And uh, they're they're not these like graceful kind of perfect like starfighters that we think of. It's not you know it it definitely has a Oh god, I don't just like a very lived-in vibe, like a very realness to them. Um you know, the Bebop, the ship, the ship is named the Bebop. They are cowboys, they are bounty hunters on the ship. That's why it's called Cowboy Bebop. Um it's it's sparse. The Bebop is sparse and cold and mechanical. Um it's almost like what if Infinity, the American car maker, right? Um not the mathematical concept in case you were in case you were wondering what if what if infinity made 
like legit nasty dirty cars or what if these are like old infinities kind of in in the walking dead they're all kind of fucked up and they're hardly running and, and stuff that's kind of medium the vibe i get you know and uh <laughs> i just realized i haven't really mentioned any of the characters this whole time where i mentioned them but i did not introduce them to you so uh that's definitely something since cowboy bebop is the the go-to enemy for people who don't like anime and uh generally has a broad appeal i i actually just assumed that everybody fucking knew and i know that that's not true but i don't know that it's not not true <laughs> oh i'm stupid so I, I may uh, I may include a visual guide for them in the show notes. Uh, so if you can't see it in your podcatcher, just check out the webpage at scumbags.com, S-E-U-M-M-B-A-G-S dot com. So let's, let's run them down, right? Usual suspects. Spike Spiegel is the protagonist of the story from the Bebop crew. And uh, he has the, the closest, sem- he doesn't, I mean, there, there is no love story. There's kind of a love story. I don't know. It's complicated. It's bebop. There's layers. Okay. Layers. But he has a, he has a, a crush at first fight, really. Kind of a crush at first sight, but he just, at first fight is when he's really like, wow. Um, and he's a, he's a bounty hunter and he's avoiding his past life as a gangster, basically. He, uh, he can also be a bit of a Mary Sue at times because he's just so fucking rad, right? Like, did I mention that Spike Spiegel is the coolest motherfucker in the world? You know, he's, um, cause he is like every, every kid wants to be Spike Spiegel. Even adults want to be Spike Spiegel. If I was Spike Spiegel, I would not complain. Spike Spiegel is voiced iconically by Steve Blum. Faye Valentine is the other potentially protagonist of the Bebop in this movie, and she's an amnesiac femme fatale. Not spoiling it, but her story is pretty cool. You know, right? If you dig the movie, just go ahead and watch the show, because it's, it's a good time. I think it's on Hulu or Netflix or some shit. It's, if you're out of the U.S., it's probably fucking everywhere. People are like, oh, watch the show. And here in America, it's like, don't watch the show, pay more. It's, um... Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a thing. Um but like Crunchyroll, uh Hulu, Netflix, one one somebody there would have it. Um Faye is voiced dangerously by Wendy Lee. Not because Wendy Lee is dangerous, but you know, like Faye is in her own right quite dangerous, but uh, her story's pretty rad, but I'm doing this bit where I give everybody a, an adjective and because I, I was thinking about when I said voice spy for everybody, it, it, would, it would sound boring. So I, I did that. Okay, so we're getting to the bottom of the Bebop lineup. And uh, I basically flipped the coin here because nah, it doesn't matter. Not that these characters suck or are lesser than or more so, you know, that this, that more than, but more so this episode has put them to the wayside, which is fine. And by this episode, I mean the movie, not to confuse you. So first up is Edward, who is an androgynous and goofy as hell teen girl hacker. Uh, or, I mean, she, I think she says she's a she. But it's very, she's very androgynous looking, right? And uh, Edward is at peak whimsy. Absolute peak whimsy. 
and she's uh, she's basically the forensics nerd of the police procedural in this episode, and and she is voiced brilliantly by Melissa Fon. Jet Black is an ex-cop with a crusty outside, a gooey inside, and a robotic arm. That sounds gross, but it's not. <laughs> it sounds super gross. Um, he's the mean one, but also the team mom. And uh, he's the overall sweetheart who really keeps the team together and who kind of herds these cats around. And uh, he is voiced gravelly by Bo Billingsley. Also, big shout out to Ayn. Uh, the genetically engineered Corgi, who is part of the crew of the Bebop. Ayn is legit the smartest crew member, but everybody kind of thinks that Ayn is just a fucking dog. And it's a running gag as the show goes on. I like it. I like Ayn. I don't want another pet. I, I currently have one against my will, and I love my dog dearly, and I will be very sad when my dog dies. And that day will come. But if I'm, 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 if I'm badgered into getting another dog, it will be a corgi, I, I promise, and I will name that corgi Ein. Like Einstein, in case that was unclear. Um, it's like Ein, E-I-N. Uh, but now we're done with the series kind of stars and regulars, and we're moving into movie specifics, right? So we have uh, Electra Overoa. Is, uh, she's an ex-Special Fortress... She's an ex-Special Forces bad bitch, right? Kicking ass and taking names as a private cop for a medical corporation in this movie. This is just about the only love interest uh, in any kind of plotline, and it's, it's pretty sterile, kind of in that respect. I don't think that this is a, a love wins type of movie, although it, it kind of is in a really backwards way. Oh, fuck, man. I think about things too much sometimes. I should just keep talking. Um, but it's, it's kind of like Top Gun without the sex scene, if you can dig it. Like, it's, uh, it's, it's really weird. Uh, almost a rape scene. Definitely some type of sexual assault scene, but, but no sex scene. And, uh, I guess I'm okay with that. You know, Electra Electra has a bit of a mysterious past, and she really doesn't get a whole lot of, uh, stuff in this movie. But, uh... Oh, God, I already used uh, Brilliant. Um, she is voiced superlatively by Jennifer Hale, who is a popular voice actor. Vincent Volaju is, um, he's the big bad and uh, the bounty of this, this week. He's also an ex-Special Forces, an ex-Special Forces bad bitch. However, he got injected with some nanomachine shit and then perhaps injected with some anti-nanomachine shit and pass it on to Electra and Faye. And he's got some issues, you know, I'm, there's, there's, it's unclear how Electra got it, but whatever. And there's some stuff in there and I'll, I'll jump in, but, um, this performance might be my favorite one in the movie. And, uh, he is broodingly voiced by Darren Norris. Rashid, or Dr. Mendelo, but like on the lamb, right? Um, he's uh, the cool Moroccan guide, but also basically the mad scientist who realized that his creation was dangerous and tried to kill it. He's that, um, he's the Frankenstein to our Vincent's Volaju's monster, 
kind of thing like he's uh he's frankenstein vincent is monster and um it's kind of an interesting character who shows up twice basically and uh that that part of the movie is pretty intriguing he's he's voiced genially by nicholas guest uh lee sampson is a bad guy hacker who is uh somewhat divorced from reality like vincent but in um but he thinks it's all a video game. He's annoying as shit, and it uh, t- it seems to be a bit of a commentary on nerds, I think, in general. He's into, like, retro games and shit, and he's, you know, I, I, I'm here like, oh, fuck, I have my, like, my Nintendo and my Super Nintendo and shit. Like, this is about me, isn't it, you know, as I'm, as I'm rewatching this. This is, this is me. Um... But he uh, he doesn't like new games, and he gets really obsessed with games. Even you know, even when he has somebody pointing a real ass gun to his head, he's still pissed off about his game. And um, he's voiced annoyingly, terribly annoyingly, by Dave Witt- Wittenberg. Um, and I'm not knocking on on Dave Wittenberg here at all. I'm sure that that was the direction that was given, and I'm sure that he fucking nailed it. The the character was written to be annoying fucking mission accomplished sir i salute you but i will say that i absolutely loved all of the voice performances in this movie right even the ones that i didn't mention because there's there's definitely more cast and there's some stuff that comes from the show and there's oh it's so much it's so so much i'm not gonna i'm not gonna dissect it all i'm rambling already going back to pacing and such they really don't do it uh they really don't do a whole lot these extra characters and sometimes it's a comic relief and um you know kind of just exposition rubber duckies a little bit jennifer hale though and darren norris absolutely fucking crush this movie and and really try to steal the show right from the excessively strong cast darren norris might even feature into a new podcast concept that i have coming up so you know just stay tuned just kind of keep your ear to the ground like it'll be chill a uh, couple irons in the fire, you know, working with some people, make taking some meetings. Yeah, so, you know, realistically, a couple irons in the fires, but not enough air to keep them all hot. Uh, but such is life. So Vincent is an interesting character psychologically in that he exhibits some fairly tangible issues that he expresses in the first person, right, which which led me to do about five minutes of internet research. He says that he doesn't know if he's alive or dead, and he also says that he doesn't know if this is the dream world or if his past life was the dream world. Vincent is, is also suffering some amnesia from the, the experimental process that was done on him in Titan, done to him on Titan. You know, Titan, the moon of Saturn, right? In a, in a weird experiment by by the martian army and i think there's some validity to that cotard cotard's syndrome right cotard there's the guy cotard's syndrome is also called walking corpse syndrome and uh it can be caused by brain damage interestingly enough it's um it doesn't seem to be quite as sexy as as vincent's you know condition and uh, it seems a lot less engaging because the person themselves really just think they're dead and, and like they want to like go to the morgue and like lay down on like the things and just like, oh, I belong here. I am dead. Or like go to a graveyard and just kind of hang out. 
And uh, they'll be like, oh, I smell like rotting fish. I'm dead. So it's not cool. It's like a, it's like, a like for, for screen purposes, I'm not trying to minimize anybody's, you know, mental health issues or anything like that. And if you do need help, please get help. You know, I, I actually just saw a story about a few folks that I follow on Twitter and, and one of their friends, like, you know, kind of like friends in common, he, uh, he took his own life. And it's not cool. If you need some help, get some help, please. But um, this isn't um, movie desirable in terms of a mental health issue that somebody would want to portray. And um, it's, it's definitely not um, like um, the song Crimson by Edge of Sanity. It's not that kind of cool. It's not a 12 Monkeys cool. It's not anything like that. It's not like a scheme or whatever. Well, walking corpse syndrome is, I, I, it, it's fucking like, I'm just, it, it, it's something else. Solipsism syndrome, however, is when someone may not believe that anything is real outside of their minds. This is more in line with Vincent's whole like thing. And this can come from, uh, it can come from extreme isolation and it, um, manifests itself, uh, you know, from in loneliness, detachment, and indifference in most cases. His case is a little more motivated, but he's also lost his memories of his previous life. And the vibe I got from the cutaways was that he was abandoned on Titan, Titan, left for dead. And, uh, he made his way back to Mars by, by hook and by crook after a long time, right? Because kind of what they say is that, like, he's immortal now, you know, kind of thing. Like, you cannot kill him. It seems that way. He seems a bit of a super soldier. You know, that like, like the impression is that he's very, very resilient. So he, he could have been left on Titan for a long time and kept alive by whatever they injected him with. You know, Electra in this time was in the same unit and the unit was disbanded or whatever. And she got, she up and went and got a job, like an established one at that. So I don't know. I don't know if it was, I don't know what the time frame there is, but I feel like it was a lot. I feel like he was just alone in a big bad way. So Spike and Vincent really do the, the dark reflection thing pretty hard in this movie. And it's easy to think of Spike as the good guy, and we absolutely want to as viewers, right? Again, because he's so goddamn cool, <laughs> and we want to be him, and we don't all want to be the bad guy. But we really forget that Spike has led a life of crime and acquired his skills by just, like, basically fucking people up as a job, you know? So I think that uh, saying that they're opposites is generous, but they're definitely on opposing ends of this, you know, whole killing everybody thing, but they both are walking corpses. Uh, Spike actually, he has some dialogue on that, and, and I guess, spoiler for the show, he faked his own death to get out of his, his gang shit. So, he's figuratively dead. And, uh, you know, literally in some ways as well, Spike um, has issues opening up, and he doesn't necessarily live the full life that one would Imagine, I mean, none of the, the folks on the Bebop do, and they all have their things. And that's, again, the beauty of the show. The show is so very dense, and talking about this movie without talking about the show is difficult. Because the movie does not stop to read you into these things. 
the movie assumes that you've been watching the show. So, cool. Just saying. Not mad about it. I'm just alerting you. If, if none of this made sense, it's because the show, basically. But Spike has a little monologue, like kind of uh, mid, mid-credits, I think. Maybe towards the end of the credits a little bit, and uh, I will quote it here. It's just that he was all alone, always by himself. Never anyone to share the game. A man who lived in dream. That's who he was. And in that, like, Spike is really talking about himself as much as he's talking about Vincent. Always half in, right? Like, um... Spike's on the on board the Bebop, but he was never a hundred percent on board the Bebop, you know. So, again, all part of the show, and knowing what happens in the show makes the movie work better. So the end fight, right, takes place on the Martian version of the Eiffel Tower, and that's interesting in a way. And and you know, again, Heaven or Las Vegas, Cocteau Twins. Right, Cherry Colored Funk, the first fucking track on that album, is just, it's one of the greatest things that I've ever heard, I think. Um, it's definitely an experience, and with that vibe, and with that dreaminess, we get Vincent, who is legitimately, figuratively, in a walking dream. But figurative is verging towards literal at that point, because he really cannot discern reality, um, which is, again, something that we, at a base level, can probably do all the time. So it'd be weird to be like, oh, whatever, you know, it would just be weird for us to, to really judge that super hard. But Las Vegas itself, uh, Las Vegas can feel like a dream. I have a, a really interesting, well, I don't think it's that interesting, but I have, I have a relationship with Las Vegas. I've been a few times and I enjoy it greatly, but it is, it is living a dream. Really. Ultimately you are in a hotel. You do not have the responsibilities of life. Like I don't gamble, right? You know, but I, I love going, and I just I can't afford that lifestyle. Really, I I go, um, I go, and and they're they're excessive and they're extravagant and they're they're beautiful environments to be in, and there's there's food and there's drink and and all these things and shows and it's like a dream itself. It's it's the middle of the the bone dead asteroid desert is this fucking oasis that is literally like you walk into a pocket universe like some Marvel comic shit. Or DC Comics, I don't know which one has pocket universes. And um, anything is possible in in Las Vegas. But it, it is like walking between worlds, and coming back is jarring. If you've stayed in Vegas for a week for an event, uh, corporate events, a lot of them in Las Vegas and things like that, when you come back, it is jarring, at least for me. I get, um, I get into the rhythm of that life and coming back and needing to do laundry and, you know, clean and, and all these things and do dishes. It's, uh, it's definitely something. And I mean, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm just fucking eating shit at this point, reaching for that connection at this point. I don't know. I don't know. Let's, um, let, let, let let's move on to the things I'm not cool with. There are a couple of things I'm not cool with. So the whole thing about Vincent just kind of being like, crazy i'm not i'm not super thrilled with um he's not my favorite bad guy characterization but i loved his character if you can dig that this like uh long live bearded mysterious guy darren norris doing the the voice you know 
but he does that rapey thing with Faye there for a bit, and it's it's concerning. It is concerning. It's um, he kind of like justifies like being horny as like kind of bringing him out of anybody that makes him feel feelings kind of thing. So Faye makes him feel horny. I I can only assume, and Spike makes him feel energized because Spike is a challenge of of some respect, even though he kind of easily dispatches Spike for the most part, you know? So, um, you know, then he doesn't shoot Electra, and I'm like, okay, so Papa be horny, you know? Um, can we get something more out of this a little bit? You know, and he has a good, like, soliloquy and stuff, like, but he remembers, oh, I loved her as he's dying and whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean... Like, Electra's like, definitely badass in every every which way, but I, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know, killing people wasn't enough of a rush, like, you just gotta see your, your girl and just be like, oh, for the second time, by the way, and just not shoot her. There wasn't a lot of time to for, for Electra to be a character also, and, um, you know, we spend more time with Vincent, I guess, because he's doing dirt, uh, but we do send, spend some time with the ISSP which is a little bit of comic relief, which is um fine, I guess. I don't know. I just, I feel like Electra's exposure to the audience is more akin to a, a 30 minute TV show than a two hour movie. And I really think that's where this movie runs into trouble. Um, there's not a lot going on. Like, yeah, she gets shit on at work and you know what, maybe that's a, a commentary on being a woman in the workplace, which I get it, and I'm here for it, and I like it. But it's not a lot, and, you know, kind of Spike being a bit of a Mary Sue, he gets shot, like, he's in the realm of action hero, but he gets shot, and he's up again in, like, 40 minutes. He takes a nap. I'm like, I'm good. I just had a large-caliber bullet just go through my body. It's chill. No big deal. Vincent's like, I missed your vital organs or whatever. And, uh... Like, that's like a, an in-universe, like, justification. But it's also like, dude, you just got shot. But yeah, I just, I mean, you know, I have questions. I, is Vincent crazy? Or, or was it from being abandoned? Or was it the virus? Or was it both? Um, if it was either, why didn't, or if it was either the, of the virus, like, if it was the virus, why didn't Faye or Electra go crazy? Are they super soldiers now? Why, why is not the entire population a super soldier if they all got dosed with the vaccine and the virus? Are they going crazy? Um, but like he cooked a grenade in his hand. Like he literally pulled the pin and just held it in his hand and it exploded and he was fine. Not a scratch on him. He disappeared from the middle of fucking nowhere. So I, I, I leave it for dramatic purposes that this is what happened. However, I have questions, and but that's okay. They're not they're not deal breakers for me. You you kind of accept it. You suspend disbelief in this animated world, and I think that allows it to play a little more. You know, I guess in closing, you know, I like the movie. I do. I, I like the movie. It isn't perfect. If I sound like really down on it right now, I'm actually just super duper tired. That's all it is. I've done a bit today. And I am just out of fucking gas. I am just gassed. Um, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned already that it isn't perfect. I, I still like it, and I think that's being fair. I think you can still like something even if it isn't perfect. Fine. Fair. I'm not going to say it's the greatest movie, 
I do think that Cowboy Bebop is one of the greater animes, though, and the movie is part of that. Like, if you have never watched Cowboy Bebop, watch episode one. If you watch episode one of Cowboy Bebop and you hate it, just never watch it, because you're going to hate it all the way through. But episode one fucking slaps. Okay, and episode one is already quoting a lot of a lot of movies in and of itself. It's really good. It's just, it's a little more... Uh, if you're expecting anime, I don't, I don't know what you're expecting, but maybe you're not going to get what you're expecting. Um, that's a very uh, obtuse way of saying um, your mileage may vary, right? But this is a a more featured, right? Like a uh, more upscale Cowboy Bebop episode. It's not one of the better ones, I don't think, but it definitely has more stuff in it. It has the GPS, it has the sat-nav, it has the cooling seats, the heated seats, all that, you know? The window shades, all that. So, it has more stuff, and in music and in animation, it is definitely a superlative in, in the, the span of Cowboy Bebop itself. 100%. It is stellar and standout in that respect. However in making a two-hour episode the same story that you kind of put over a 30-minute episode gets spread real real thin and i think that's where you run into some of the cracks not all of them you know um again it's not a game breaker it's not a game changer just just some kind of weird pacing and some some jokes that maybe don't land as well as they could have also not my first time watching it so i knew that some of them were coming right But there's still a lot of subtext. There's a lot of it, a lot of it, and a lot of it involves the show as well. So if you go out and you just watch this movie, and you're like, it's fine, but it feels like it's missing a lot. Um, the missing a lot is also from the show. And it's subtextual. You won't get like a, an episode guide that says like, and Spike does this, and the recaps and stuff like that. That almost never happens in the show. It's almost all kind of Monster of the Week type things. So, Bounty of the Week, I should say. So, you know, kind of just understand that going in as well. It's not a serialized show. It's um, it's kind of standalone, and you explore things in those 30 minutes. And I think that's the format that everybody was accustomed to working to story-wise in this. You know, and, and the show does beg analysis that I am not qualified to give. Um, but I'm sure a bunch of the YouTube videos that I'm going to link below will do a better job at that. Sometimes I wished uh, I had gotten an English degree at school. Um, sometimes I wish I would go back and get one. And that is actually the scary part because I'm enjoying my freedom. But um, am I free or is, is anybody ever truly free? I don't know. I don't think so. Not truly free. Not 100% free. But I think the... The thesis here really is that Spike and Vincent are are both disconnected from from their worlds from us, and uh, you know knowing what happens really kind of puts a pin on that. And the movie knows that you should know what happens. And literally, after Spike delivers that last monologue, the movie asks you uh, instead of where it would normally sign off, in the same way the show does, it says. Are you living in the real world? Question mark, right? And uh, 
the thesis of the movie is that question and all of the ways that that question can be interpreted, which is many, just in the context of, of bebop per se, but in our context as well. So that's it. Um, find me on Twitter at CoolMarkD on Letterboxd at MarkD20, Mark with a K, Cool with a C. So hey people, hey team, what's up fam? Uh, you know, the message is, is the same. It's, it's be nice, stay safe, wear a mask, Black Lives Matter. See you, Space Cowboy.